Hello and welcome to <clears throat> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Midiera Meets podcast where we speak to a wide range of people from the music world. On the episode this time we've got David from Plogue who are an incredible synth software development company um, making all kinds of different devices really but they are known for their chip emulations like their Mega Drive or Genesis uh, chip synth MD uh, Porter FM as well is an emulation of a classic Porter sound keyboard and they've just released a new SNES chip synth the SFC There is now a GoFundMe page for the podcast if you want to donate. You could also donate a few pounds by Ko-fi if you like. All of the donations go back to the running of the show and I'm pleased to say we've had our first donation. And so uh, Bjorn Schellen is the first person who goes on the MIDI Arpeggiation Hall of Fame. Thank you very much for your donation Bjorn, that's much appreciated. But let's get into the podcast. Uh, the first question I asked David was about his musical beginnings. Uh, my first memories of music and some tales that my mother have uh, has has talked to me again is, well, I'm autistic, and back when nobody knew what that was much or at all, and people were scared that I was the guy sitting in a room just with a record player as a one-year-old and two-year-old and just... My cousins were playing and laughing and running around and I was just listening to music and people, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> <laughs> now I know and it's, it's quite fascinating. So I listened to pretty much everything, uh, local French stuff here. And um, well, of course, Beatles and Elvis and ABBA. <laughs> my, fa- my dad was a huge fan of ABBA. So, so that got played a lot. But re- yeah, Beatles really struck me very early on as something interesting. But my dad was also into... A lot of, uh, at the time, uh, disco, so uh, lip sync and <laughs> funky town and that sort of stuff. And Pat Benatar and anything I could get my hands on, I played in, in the mid, mid to late 70s. Yeah. Wow. And is there, because you live in Montreal yeah. uh, in Canada, yeah. is there much of like how... Do you have like a more prominence for French speaking music or English? What's the sort of balance you have there? No, there's, well, I mean, the, the, the thing I always say is, yeah, there is some very, very good stuff locally in Montreal in French, but you take the, the pool of talent in the world is such a way that the chances are the best stuff is here because we're 8 million people compared to the rest of the world is kind of slim. So I, I have no problems listening to anything else. There is... There's standouts for me in my musical education here in, in Montreal, which is, uh, in French, we say harmonium and beau dommage, which are really pop 70s-ish with a slight touch of prog, but not too much, really like keeping the pop and folk roots, but uh, telling stories of who we are and like from the suburbs or, or the les ruelles, uh, which is the back alleys of, of houses in Montreal, which was quite famous. So they talk about that sort of stuff and it resonated with people here a lot. Excellent. Well, yeah, I think any new musical um, sounds for people to hear are welcome. Um, so, yeah, any any sort of um, any sort of act that maybe we English speakers wouldn't know of would be, um, yeah, it would be really beneficial to hear about. Yeah. Well, like I said, harmonium, nearly harmonium, I guess you'd say in English, is quite relatively known. I think even though they're they're local from here, they have albums which have been. 
uh, I mean, they nearly made it big and, and the leader just didn't want that amount of fame. And I mean, they started a world tour and they just said, screw it. And, and they stopped. Doing <laughs> but they're, they're quite well known if you do research on them. So I could give you a link. Excellent. Oh, cool, man. Thank you. And um, yeah, when did, did you when did you start making music of your of your own? When did you start experimenting with instruments? That's funny. It was really on cheap Casios and and. I mean, the, the sad thing about music education when you don't specialize in it is that you do the boring stuff of playing a recorder and everybody plays out a tune in the class. And so it gives you a wrong idea of, of what music can be. And it's really uh, my late teens that I always looked at my the, the, the guitar my dad bought at one point thinking he would learn it <laughs> and never actually did. And I guess one of the reasons it didn't help, it was a really cheap Kent. And uh, at one point, I just started picking it up and, and trying to play it. And I soon upgraded to a, a Ibanez, which I still have back here. <laughs> like tu tuned in, in C <laughs> with really genty sort of <laughs> strings on it. <laughs> I don't use it much. Um, and really, I mean, computer music and, and video game music earlier on, especially um, the Commodore 64, really blew my mind. And I've been stuck forever <laughs> since then uh, this is really you have a few things that you do discover in life that really blows your mind uh, that would be the sound of what a computer can do and for me that was through the commodore 64 sid chip and so my good friend had one and i was always at his place uh recording like the tv with a <laughs> with a cheap tape recorder and playing it back home and begging my dad to give me one <laughs> that took like three years or something before i had my own and by then everyone was like many people were stepping away from commodore 64 and and to uh, amigas or, or ibm pcs or just playing on nintendo and super nintendo but i stuck uh, my Commodore 64 up until college actually <laughs> so like early uh, the first time i went on the internet uh I'm opening so much, so many doors. You need to stop me at one point. It's fine. No, no, no. You're going in the right direction. Yeah. I first logged on to the internet on my birthday in November '94, and it was on a Commodore 64 when a 1200 uh, K modem bud. So that was kind of interesting. Excellent, man. Well, um, yeah. I mean, there's 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 loads of like musical influences in there, and loads of uh, incredible, like you say, a lot of directions where you could go. I would like to say right now that I do have a Commodore sixty four sitting over oh. there, which has got synth carts and retro scoy and Messiah. So oh, I'm nice. I'm going into I've I've had it for years and I haven't really played around with it too much. So I'm like, yeah, this is now the time to sit and play with it. That's amazing, man. So um, yes, what sixty five eighty one or eighty five eighty? I don't know. Uh, I don't is, it, is it brown? Is it brown or white? That it's that brown. helps. It's, okay, and, so and, it's sixty five eighty one unless it's been heavily modified. That that's that's the older one with a really distorting filter that we all like or most of us like so some some hate that but for me that that's where it all started nice man yeah i remember the commodore 64 was amazing growing up and, and i think looking back at it now um there's the, the response of the games like the uh I, I guess some of them the frame rates were really terrible but they seem quite like fluid and they it's so um vivid isn't it the the, the yeah. way that it looks like in the, in the video games Oh, yeah, it definitely has its style. I mean, I, I, I just see one frame of a Commodore 64, and I know it just because of the, the, the palette, the color schemes is so weird. <laughs> you yeah. really know. It's like yeah. a really weird brown and, 
and oh, yeah. sort of a bluey purple and yeah exactly what yeah. games were you playing what games did you go up playing ah uh, of course all the epics uh epics games uh summer games winter games we played that a lot uh but my friends and i uh, made like all summer long like battles of lords of conquest and mule so that's where like multiplayer games on that were amazing and they weren't they weren't the the most good looking uh but the challenge that we had, like four players sharing the two joysticks and uh, fighting over that, was was just amazing. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, multiplayer on one one unit, right? Not like land. Yeah, yeah. No so land well, system. you have two two joysticks, and at one point, oh, it's player one's turn. Okay, who gets the joystick now? And the two unlucky ones get to play with the Q and A keys and stuff when there's like <laughs> trading going on. So you can play four player, but like two people on the keyboard and two others with a joystick. I forgot about those days. Or like there was times <laughs> when people got like, you get the unofficial controller because yeah, you're just the guest. I'm getting the official one, you know, there's always yeah, those like, uh, yeah, priority um, or hierarchy of controller wasn't there. Yeah, that's brilliant, man. Yeah. That's amazing. And so did you did you still dabble with the guitar even? I know like obviously the the, the electronic stuff was important to you. Did you have it's you... been yeah, I I um like my I was a music fan before touching an instrument and that's one of the big stupid I I don't know. You you do lots of stuff when you were a kid and I only started playing guitar at 18, 17, 18ish and since then, like I, I bought my first MIDI keyboards around like 93, 92, 94. And from there, like I've been on a gas rampage and picking up lots of stuff. I mean, I, I guess you know that, but the, the, the early 90s were like the early to mid 90s were like a golden age of us being able to pick up like crazy amounts of gear for cheap because people were getting rid of the digital stuff Absolutely. and interested back in analog. So and and or or just like ignoring both and just wanting to have a workstation with with general midi sounds and and we could get some deals it's incredible i, I could brag along but no. please do Most let the, me hear yeah. it because i know people that have got <laughs> sh101s for like 50 pounds and stuff but yeah i, I got that's... an sh101 back there but uh that was i didn't pay it cheap uh my Younger brother bought it, and he had he needed money, so I bought him back for a thousand dollars Canadian. Not actually a deal, but even then, now I think it's, it, it could get. I could sell it for more, but uh, I'd say uh, my I got a busted Juno one hundred six, one with like one or two voices dead, so people just got rid of them, and I eventually fixed it. Like it's it's in prime condition, and I got it for a trade with something I don't remember. And a Moog Prodigy for like one one hundred fifty dollars. Oh wow! And the, the the story was incredible. You you need to, to to put yourself in a mindset of someone who bought this earlier and thought it was like it's monophonic. You can do anything with it. Uh, it's completely uh, out of date, and no one wants that. So it wasn't in in the in the paper actually. The little ads that you get like selling instrument. I think it was ninety five, and wow. I mean in a in a suburb, and the dude like listed it as a mini Moog. So, oh, mini Moog for 125. Like, so I called the guy, oh, it's actually a prodigy. Well, yeah, we'll still go get it. (laughs) (laughs) So I get there in the driveway and I see his little girl like running to the house. Daddy, daddy, he's here. And then 
like I, I'm prompted to go downstairs and, and this guy just starts to play like five keyboards at once and just does a solo on the Prodigy, I guess to make it sound more impressive so I, I don't <laughs> leave and not buy it. Fair, so, here, here's the money. Yeah, here's the money. Thank you. And we were laughing all the way to the car and like for the 20 minutes or 30 minutes it took to get to get back home. So Moog That's Prodigy. Amazing. Yeah. Great synth. Yeah. Awesome. And since it's while well, we don't much work on analog emulation, uh, but like definitely if we went there, he'd be uh, it, it'd be prodded and. But I mean, there's so much analog emulation, so I, I, we could get back to that. But mm. one of the reasons why, uh, anyway, I guess you have plenty of questions on what we do and and how we approach the research or. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I do love to get involved in the sort of. Uh, yeah, the the computer game chat and um the yeah particularly like yeah any any synth purchases people have got over the years. Yeah. Um. So where did you go from then? Like playing video games and um like did you want did you have a desire to make your own video games or or go into software development? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, as a as a in my in my early 20s i didn't really know what i wanted to do i i've been playing and programming just random crap on computer on the commodore 64 and and cracking games just for fun we didn't have a distribution network just say i bought a game and i crack it and my friend can have it it was just like a challenge uh i shouldn't say that <laughs> no that's no everyone did that i mean were you, yeah, were you yeah. swapping tapes with each other because in in england yeah I don't floppies remember. yeah we, we we bought our our 1541s uh to my friends and we duplicated things like with fast nibble or whatever we had to uh like duplicate uh five and a quarter discs Exactly. Like I don't. I don't remember really hardly ever seeing like the original copies of games. Like someone That's, would someone would hand you a game, and be like, "Oh wow, it's the original." Oh wow, I never didn't exactly. even know these I, things I, existed. That's fascinating because I had the same reflection. My first official like Commodore sixty four games that I bought was a, a Dungeons and the first official Dungeons and Dragons game called uh, Pools of Radiance. And it it came with eight floppies, and I kept looking at the stickers of the floppies. I mean, I own an original Commodore 64 game, and I was flabbergasted by that, because that was the first time. Because, I mean, locally in my suburb of saint jean sur south of Montreal, there's no way you can find a Commodore 64 game in a store. It just doesn't happen. There are, like, compute centers and stuff and specialized, but there were, like in different cities or nothing locally I could I could get my hands on that had any I mean the Mastertronics games were sold at retail store but they were like budget games that we never saw like the big the big good games that we wanted in the stores ever mm. we used and, to have um like mail order you used to have to like if you really wanted a choice of video games or accessories um yeah we, you you had this magazine that come that you could subscribe to that would come to your house and then you could order a particular cable because yeah like you say the the video game sh shops that were on the high street just didn't have what you really wanted yeah and in fact it's, it's funny because as I said, I kept, I stayed a long time on a Commodore 64 and I bought Commodore format magazines imported from the UK at incredibly stupidly high prices. <laughs> <laughs> it's so worth it, man. I mean, you sort of read yeah. them for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. You know, archive.org has a really good, oh, yeah. an, it, oh, yeah. isn't it incredible? The, the archive of it video is. game magazines. Um, oh, yeah, the Commodore, uh, Compute Gazette, Compute Magazine, Run, 
and like Commodore format. I, I, I go there once in a while just to <laughs> pick a random one and just look at the ads and the, the reader questions and <laughs> like what, what were the questions that people had in those days and how they approach computer science and what pre-internet like it's really fascinating it is and i think it i think it people that grew up with computers back then uh, you have an ingrained sense of patience for things yeah like there was no instant gratification in because i remember hours and hours maybe even days spent on trying to get the sound working in a video game you know yeah. and then and then you get it working and you play the game for about 20 you know you spent like four hours trying to get the sound card driver to work or get something to install properly yeah. in dos for hours and then oh, you're more, you're way more satisfied when it starts to work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you did lead you. It always sort of led you into like, oh my god, you've nearly done it, or it worked for two seconds on the intro, or it worked for the mm. FMV, but then nothing else. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it it really instilled a sense of patience in people because there was no, you had to like learn things and you had to wait for like those people that were writing to the magazine saying, please, can you tell me how to do this sort of thing? They would have to wait like two months until even if their letter was, you know, was if their letter was <laughs> yeah. printed. <laughs> yeah, they probably found their answer by themselves. So that's that's an interesting thing about about tech support that I could get into about like if you answer right away. I mean, you're 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 making sure they're asking the stupid question right after before, like thinking from themselves and just trying. And if you just spend like not answer for 15 minutes, often they say, oh, I found the answer. Thank you. Bye. So you try to be polite. But at the same time, and, it, and it's human. And I do that as well. If you know somebody has the answer and he's readily available, you're just going to bug him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think we've all sent the consecutive email sort of five minutes yeah. later, going, "Oh, actually, I worked it out." Yeah. Um, I guess for, for me, the thing with customer support that that is a little bit frustrating is when you you work with someone for a long time to solve their problem, mm-hmm. and you assume their problem is solved because they just fall off the radar after yeah. your last email. I always find that's like like if you spent a long time helping someone to get it set up. Fair enough. Yeah. Like they just want to go and play on it. Um, yeah, but for me personally, that's like that's a slightly frustrating side of customer support. Yeah, a relative, a relative uh, related uh, issue we have is sometimes like a, a customer reports a bug, and at one point I suggest one thing, and they said, "Okay, it works." Well, was what actually fixed it, or can you tell me? Can you run this particular test? No, 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 no. It's all right. It, it's working now. No, no. But we want to fix it for future customers. For other people. Yeah. They, they, they just don't care. Like it works for me, or they don't answer. But we want to. If there's a critical issue, uh, say an installer thing, and some file got mismatched or miscopied or had wrong permissions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but they so are a minority, was, I'd say, for me personally, yeah. anyway, in customer support, it's a minority of cases. Most people are really nice. They're really yeah. friendly and they're really grateful for for the help. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I was getting to, I think, before, like, we're going to open so many uh, things, that, doors, and I'm not going to close. Okay. Uh, like, what what bring me, uh, yeah, I was, I was really looking forward to... Uh, I'm, I'm not looking forward to work, uh, studying computer science because I was really, really scared of stop starting to hate it, hate it because it was always been my passion and thing. I, I my hobby was always like messing with with com- with 
computers and figuring how things worked. And just the thought of being a day job was incredibly boring for me and I was stressed for a long time and scared about it. So I went to do like uh, cinema classes and art classes and, and stuff like that, which was amazing. And at one point, okay, uh, I have I have this opportunity there and they're offering me like to, to go into the, the smaller program and I need to, to prove that I can good grades so they can upgrade me to the full uh, baccalaureate here. And so the it, I was I was uh, accepted as one year term in computer science and Université de Montréal. And then I got good grades and then I went on to to to, to do the whole thing. And uh, meanwhile, uh, my interest in, in, in well, of course, uh, for me personally, I, I started playing music in the early 90s. And what was going on in the early 90s, we all know, like all the Seattle scene and the indie scene and things that I didn't know was possible. And then from that, uh, I started to be interested in in uh, industrial music. So, of course, uh, the ministries and the, the, the Nine Inch Nails and the Skinny Puppies and the Frontline Assemblies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And from then on to more artsy techno like Aphex Twin and then Square Pusher and all that sort of stuff, which led me to being uh, fascinated uh, by uh, German minimal techno <laughs> from from Köln. So so that's what I've been briefly DJing like in the late 90s. I've, I've bought truckloads of records uh, to spend mm. this. A, f- a few nights, uh, like Tuesday nights at a specific bar in Montreal, you could see me like two times a month. So that, that's the amount of gigs that I played, but for maybe three years and was quite nice with, with the, the co-founder of plug, which is called uh, Sebastien. Sebastien oh, yeah. Moulier. So we both, we both work together at that club. Like uh, uh, I'm trying to concentrate on what I want to say. And there's a cat like meowing at the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you were talking about your, your record collection and, and DJing and stuff. Um, yeah. You have got quite a formidable collection to, to, um, to your left. There. I guess, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there's plenty of generic stuff. There's lots of rock, lots of pop, but I have a special section that's like, I don't know, maybe a, a meter wide, which is all like uh, minimal techno of like, say, late 90s to 2002 or something. So yeah, compact, uh, basic channel, that sort of stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, I, the yeah. only artist I know of who's on compact is uh, Rex the Dog, I think. I think he's had a few releases on Compact, but um, yeah, Basic Channel. I, I've there is um, yeah they've they've released some incredible stuff, haven't they? Like the yeah. sort of like the early seminal... dub techno, which is yeah, Excellent. yeah. But Mike King, Thomas Brinkman, and 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 Mono Lake, of course, from <laughs> which we all know is one of the founders of Ableton. Uh, I guess the two guys are. Yeah, and what would be your sort of standout tracks that you would that you your sort of go to? Oh, there's one track, uh, a few tracks from uh, Compact's more obscure label called Auftrieb. Auftrieb? I guess I don't know how you pronounce it in German. I could I could give you a sample of it. It's called Leukem. Mm-hmm. And I just love that track. It's so gritty. But my most, I mean, we all have those tracks that we, we kind of, I don't know if it's the case for you, but one of those tracks that we, we keep for ourselves until... I mean, you really want to get the steam out. <laughs> There's one particular drill and bass track uh, from Alec Empire and Panacea that I play like, when I want to. Like, this is what I need at one point, And after that, I'm so calm. Uh, it's uh, Alec Empire versus Panacea. It's just, uh, 
from Chrome Records, Chrome Records 7, I think. Mm-hmm. And that that really, I played this to death. And there's one remix by, by Otteker, uh from various artists that I really like as well. It's like, you think it's, I mean, it's repetitive. There's always something shifting in the background slowly or like, and you don't really, you don't really notice it, but, but it, it never, your, your mind is never bored because it's always kind of progressing slowly. It's perfect, perfect work. And, and I mean, I, I'm, I've been coding with minimal techno and, and really uh, atmos- atmospheric stuff for ages. It just sinks my brain to code for some reason. Mm. Yeah, I think there definitely are certain types of music that lend themselves to, uh, yeah, different different operations. And tech, yeah, techno, I find, is a good one for working as well. Um, yeah. What is it about that minimal techno that you, you particularly like? Because, I mean, techno does span a really broad range of, of sort of stuff. What is it about the minimal industrial stuff that, that draws you in? I love the greediness. I love texture. I love... Uh grain yeah that would be a thing so a pulsing a pulsing beat that drives you but at the same time always challenges your brain with sort of textures that you wonder how they were created like which distortion pedal is that is that a glitch in hardware (laughs) (laughs) so i don't know if you know pole i don't know no yeah it's a a german artist that has a label and he created a whole a whole persona not persona but a series of, of records uh, because his Waldorf pole was broken and he kind of made these little clicks and blips. Right. So, <laughs> so like throughout his, the, the, the three releases, that's, that's one thing that, that stands out. Like it's like, it's sort of like vinyl cracking, but it's like, like DSP clicks and, but it's kind of unique bloppiness because it's filter related. I mean, it's quite unique. Yeah, there is something great about when when synths or when when machines break down a little bit, they they start to do things that no one's ever heard before, and you sort of know yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing with with some some like rock tricks of like stabbing a knife inside a of a speaker cone and making it buzz in a certain way. <laughs> but I, I love that sort of stuff, really. Do you have like experimental music nights in Montreal where people do weird oh yeah well sound well stuff? yeah the Montreal and the surroundings have uh, have had like uh, music concrete and, and and well there's a Mutec festival that's really well known worldwide right now that's uh, that we used to go to like we <laughs> we were Mutec rats <laughs> in the early twenty. 20- <laughs> The first three editions of Mutech, we were like, we didn't sleep for for a week and just go everywhere. And, but at the same time, at a certain point, I mean, it, it gets like the festival, the festival of jazz where you always see the same artists. So year after year, it starts to be less experimental and you kind of, okay, he's going to like Thomas Brinkman is playing. And I, well, I love these guys at one point, like the, there's a renewal that you don't feel, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that's true with anything. So fest- festivals become stale at some point by reinviting always the same people. Definitely. Or maybe I just I, I'm so disconnected that maybe I'm saying like somebody somebody will hate me. <laughs> that that in fact there's many people creating uh lots of good stuff but I can't keep up. So Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it's true that like um every there's so many amazing people making music that it's probably not it's not really fair that 
some huge artist is always getting that gig when there's other people yeah. that are like really pushing it that are probably really struggling as well and they're not getting a look in because they're not signed or they haven't got the particular the right promoter or the right manager or they don't know the right person <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah i think that's a fair point i think that's a fair point yeah. cool so you went to university university to do um computer science yeah um yeah and what did you do post university like where yeah where were you at yeah i started working in a few few jobs and progressively jumping to things that were closer to home so i started doing like <laughs> military flight simulators wow <laughs> so that was the furthest the farthest away from from what i wanted to do in life <laughs> and actually, that made me visit visit the UK a few times because I was on the Benson Air Base. I went to uh, Yeovilton. I went. <laughs> wow. I, I saw Stonehenge. I had to drive from 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 uh, Heathrow to 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 Lands End uh, for uh, like at six in the morning, <laughs> driving on the wrong side of the street, mind you. Yes, yeah, not easy. <laughs> With a rented car, I, I don't know how I did that, but uh, that's incredible. That was, that was, but uh, UK was fascinating. I did for like three years, just working on the audio side of flight simulators. So anything that the the the, the systems there, like they, they simulate everything. So the the air traffic controller tower uh, detects your presence when you're flying with these big like flight simulator things, and they need to uh, interact with the pilot and do all sorts of tango, alpha, bravo thingy. So I I integrated, like one of the things that I, I did there, which kind of re- echoes what I did later, is for cer- for certain reason, like one of the contracts with, with the, with, that we had to do uh, was to provide like eight different voices that was randomly changed so that the, the, the pilot didn't feel like, oh, I'm going to Benson or to this airbase. And it's always the same voice, like you, uh, suspension of disbelief sort of problem. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> contractually wise, like finding someone <clears throat> uh, good enough and had a proper voice to sound like someone who's done that before was quite hard. So <laughs> I said, why don't we take <laughs> and this open source uh, uh, speech synthesizer and make it say all these things so the poor poor people uh, had to suffer listening to uh, speech synthesized voice eight, uh, seven different speech synthesized voice and one human uh, <laughs> depending on which tower they went to so that was the kind of stuff that I did so I did some audio so I didn't do like a, it wasn't like a but in the end knowing that I was doing that for the military was it didn't go right with me in my brain and looking at my myself in the mirror in the morning so mm. I got an opportunity to work in in uh media <clears throat> which is basically and that's when I that, that that's one of the reasons there's so many things that, that tie me to the UK uh one company was called Snell and Wilcox uh previously they were called Post Impressions mm-hmm. and I worked on uh synchronizing audio and video for like early uh early HD equipment. So the, the stuff that was used for like uh, special effects in episode two of Star Wars was made by the company I work with. Wow, and nice. I went to Newbury, Newbury UK for that for a week. And I just love UK pubs. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you miss, you miss them as well. <laughs> yeah, they changed a lot. Man. Those must have been in the days where you could smoke in the pub too. Like that, that yeah, was such yeah. a special time. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss the smoke, but I miss the ambience. That it created. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, they are very homely. I think that, you know, there's pubs I've been to in England that have got, you know, they've got open fires and, um, yeah, just you really feel like you're with family in, a, in an open, big yeah. open space. It's almost like someone's house sometimes when you go into a yeah. pub. Yeah, that's cool. Was that, uh, I'm just trying to think, Newbury, is that like Pinewood? Was that be Pinewood or one of the big film places? Well, well, no, no, it was a small, small. No, we didn't work at, at directly at a film studio. It was really just an office that that developed the hardware and software that was then used by by movie productions and, and TV, especially TV. But um, that's so cool, I, man. I didn't stay there for long because I don't know. I just one of. I mean, like we're going down on my psyche now. <laughs> <laughs> like, if if I don't. 100% like what I work on I don't get motivated enough and I feel bad for the people that hire me and that was a constant thing later on I wasn't happy with myself because I didn't feel like I gave my employer my 100% because I wasn't happy enough in that sort of work mm-hmm. and I, I just didn't feel right about this and for some reason like we started just for fun uh, earlier on uh, I guess I started dabbling with uh, my first VST plugins, like the free stuff in 2000, I released my first beta plugin in 99, actually. It was called Rebuilder, and it was just me learning uh, how FFT work and trying. Uh, I, I started with the hubris of saying, oh, that an- analyzes frequency content. So I'll, I thought I could take a, a full mix and separate stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like what Melodyne does with like five PhDs. I thought I could do that in five months in, in 2000 with just the FFT tutorial and, and Very some basic TSP. Well, yeah, <laughs> I quickly realized I couldn't do that. But like I transformed the, the ideas and the code that I'd done into some kind of weird analysis synthesis sort of, of, of thing where you analyze all the frequencies and you generate them with a bank of like square waves or saws or, or snares with a threshold uh, depending on which frequencies are there. So it created really uh, typically IDM-ish bleep, bleep bloops and Cool. Uh, MP3 artifacts sort of stuff. Yeah, and what were you using to to like model that? What were you build? What did you build that in? Nothing, just guesswork and trying, and just uh, send a beat in there, send uh, just a noise, and tweak the parameters until some cool stuff comes out. Excellent. And I just thought I'd do that for fun. It was never really uh, an intention of doing it full-time at all. I guess many people start that way or started that way. And back then, I don't want to sound like an old guy, but I've been doing VST plugins for 20 years and we weren't that many. I just, it, it's, it, it's incredible. You see the, the amount of, of companies doing that. And I kind of understand, I don't think most of them have the, the, uh, the impression that they're going to make a living out of them, but it's just so fun. <laughs> creating plugins and interacting with artists and making stuff that like if you're lucky is going to be used by a certain artist that you like is really really incredibly rewarding and um yeah but it was up until like 2000 and yeah we started doing Bizzle, which is our our modular vst host uh, right about that time 2001 and that was just me being frustrated that Audio Mulch didn't have like MIDI routing. <laughs> uh, Ross Bencina is is a really cool guy, and I talk to him and say, "Why don't you implement MIDI routing?" 
And he says, nah, it's not the goal. You just, uh, Midi doesn't, Midi is done, has no place in a modular, that was his opinion at the time, if I recall correctly. Sorry, Ross, if you're listening. It's, is I it said, an Australian company? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's one guy and his brother, like Russ, Russ Benzine, I think. Super fun. I remember messing around with audio mulch and just being like, this is amazing. This isn't doesn't feel because I guess out around that time was maybe like Fruity Loops three, like Reno uh, Reason, maybe three or four at that time. So um, I don't think even Reason was there. I think Reason didn't Reason it, come out in two thousand two or three or something like that. Yeah, maybe I it was Rebirth. Check. Maybe it was pre. Yeah, yeah, re, yeah. Rebirth. Pre, Rebirth was there in. 80s, 97, 98, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, but Audio Mulch is really, uh, yeah, really, really amazing sort of... Well, music. the big difference between Audio Mulch and stuff that came before, like Vaz Modular and all the early yeah, uh, DSP stuff, is that it was real-time, and uh, the only equivalent was only on Mac. So if you didn't have a Mac and you couldn't run uh, Mac's MSP, which everyone was using in the IDM scene, and to a certain extent, probably still, uh, because of its integration in, in Ableton, uh, is Audio Mulch was like the only thing that was real time. It has just, just the right amount of cool things, not enough low level modules to do like custom DSP, but still you had loopers, you, had, you could plug VST plugins in there, so uh, the Hyperprism plugs, <laughs> if you know that track. Um, and yeah, so it's a shameful ripoff. It started as a shameful ripoff of, of Audio Mulch, but adding all the stuff we wanted to do. And at the same time, we started that in 2001, and all the, the structure of the graph and all the modules are really like the, the, the examples of what you typically think of as some object-oriented programming trick, like defining your modules and classes. And so it was really learning how, how to tweak C++ into doing uh, real-time audio processing. So we were learning like how to do DSP, how to make musicians tool and how to, how to use this language that we didn't really know because sadly at university we learned Simula, which no one ever heard about. I've never heard of it. We didn't learn, we, we didn't learn C++ and then the university started teaching Java after, which makes a bit more sense. But still, so we learned C++ at the same time and how it worked uh, with it. And then, because we had a stable VST host inside Bizzle, we started to get uh, interest from OEM partners, and the first one being Garrison. Do you remember Garrison plugins? We started doing a small VST host so that it can host like multiple copies of Contact uh, to make a bigger orchestra for the personal orchestra plugin. So that was really the start point of, hey, and we actually got paid, not, I wouldn't say generously, but fairly for, for this and say, hey, we could maybe do that for a living. And then Garrison, uh, yeah, Garrison starting to say, well, we're using contact now, but what we really want is to have our own engine and tweak it the way we want for our own instruments and do it all in house and say, can you do a sampler engine? Yeah, I could. <laughs> like hubris again, when you're really young. That's and, okay. So basically I, I, I dropped my, my employer. I, went full-time making a sample playback engine called Aria, uh, which we started working on in 2005. And so Steinway, the first uh, product that came out of that was, was the official Steinway plugin. Sadly, it's not for sale anymore, but it was like how, how to test uh, 
an engine <clears throat> that you start from uh, a big piano with like 128 voice polyphony when you you hit the sustain pedal and you whack all your keys with your elbows and doesn't it needs not to click and stream from this that was a really awesome challenge and i remember playing this rachmaninov like uh, intro in c minor <laughs> like over and over to to, to 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 benchmark this thing and to optimize the code so Garrett used that, but a part of part of the deal was we could also use the technology for our own plug software, uh, plug software. But at the time, I didn't know what to do. And uh, by the way, in the evenings while while that was going on, I starting, I just had a house and expendable money, so I started to buy consoles and stuff that I'd never had before. And that was still when when pre or early eBay or pre eBay, where you could still find some stuff in yard sales. Uh, box Commodore 64s for 10 bucks and you know you know sort of stuff mm -hmm. so I, I hoarded a lot of things and I started to listen uh, more carefully about the differences of each console like Intellivision sounded that way I knew Atari sounded the Atari 2600 that had a, a particular sound to it and then like modifying them for for better video and, and audio outputs and then hey guys we should do some big sample library of of like video game sounds like they all went well there's plenty of freebies around and so nobody nobody believed in I, if mm -hmm. if the amount of time if if i stopped each time somebody close to me saying it would never work <laughs> i would have never done anything yeah that's like, true for uh, everyone I, I, man yeah definitely <laughs> like just do what drives you you know if you can oh, yeah, feel it yeah, like go in that direction definitely. so okay so it's always it's always a challenge okay i'll prove you wrong <laughs> yeah I, that's other that's the other driving factor isn't it yeah i i did some bad decisions a, a few but oftentimes like my my instincts were right and i kind of if I have an idea right now, I can, okay, let's do this, guys. And I'm more confident in what I can achieve and the sort of products I want to do. So but back to, 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 to chip sounds, uh, there was nothing out there at that point when we started working on this in 2007-ish, uh, more seriously. And uh, I soon realized that just sampling wouldn't cut it. And that's one of the things. I don't want to hit on the hail and to hit, hit with a... A hammer on the head of the head of, of, of on my competitors, but sampling eight bit consoles makes no sense, uh, just because of the physics of square waves. Uh, because if you're talking sampling, you're talking uh, interpolation and pitch shifting, and you can't pitch shift or slow down a square wave because it stops being a square wave. Just you can think of it; it starts to begin to be. It becomes a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> And early on, the Amiga uh, crowd noticed that, and you can't really, it, it needs a different approach. So I, I stopped, I sampled quite a few things, but then again, I, I just, my, my sampler engine was modified in a way that you could either, for each uh, key that you press or, or region that you define, it can either uh, trigger a sample or, or trigger a uh, sound generator that's implemented in a plugin in a sub plugin or what I call uh, uh, sound generator plugin or whatever. And from then on, I modeled uh, most of the, the waveforms that were in the Commodore 64, the, the Nintendo, and I kind of made a lot of compromises uh, with regards to like the specificities of this or that particular console. Cause it, it, like for instance, in the SID chip, there are uh, three voices 
and they can be tied to each other. So you can ring mod one to the other and hard sync one to the other. And you can send that to a filter and there's limitations and one filter for three voices and you know the you know the drill. Mm -hmm. And if you want to take all the sound chips in the world that, that people are familiar with and, and to put them all in the same like piedestal uh, in, I don't know how to say that in English, but to, to, on the same level and to be able to, to mix and match. Yeah, pedestal. Uh, say an Atari 2600 with a SID chip and make a polyphonic patch with it then you can't really follow the exact limitations of each of these consoles. So I had to design this thing where each, uh, if you take each uh, voices of each sound chip separately, it sounds indistinguishable from the real thing. But as a whole, if you're trying to mimic this exact platform, then yeah, there's this thing that might not work. So that's why, although I still love this, this piece of software, uh, I've decided to uh, clean slate and... I could go on uh, on to why we did this other line uh, with a small venture on speech synthesis in the middle with chip uh, chip speech. Everything starts with with speech, and uh, mind you, all we're not only our our, our, um, our I guess our customers are confused by all the chip products, but we're also confused by them as well. So <laughs> we just say mm -hmm. speech or synth or sounds or crusher, and we don't say the chip uh, prefix ever because it's just too confusing. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of love for your product, certainly, for the... It's amazing to hear like the trajectory of, of where you've been to get to get to where you are now. Um, um, yeah. And well, first of all, I want to say going back a sure, few, sure, quite sure. a few minutes is that it is an amazing thing. Um, you know, like it's a really honest uh, way of being that you don't want to be in a job where you don't feel like you're like, you know, really pushing it and, you know, you're really doing what you want to do. I think that's an amazing uh, like characteristic that you have, you know, to be that honest, because maybe a lot of people grow up in jobs they hate. Wh and they why did they do that? <laughs> I, don't I don't know, know either. You better be poor. <laughs> that's one thing I always say, like people think you're not rich making plugins. You're not. <laughs> Like I would we agree with that. like most of us just I mean for some companies depending on where they are I know many friends like sometimes it's ups and downs sometimes you're barely profiting uh, we don't gives ourselves dividends like ever it happened once I mean we're we're mm. lucky to break even with a salary like I won't give details but I'm not paying myself the salary that I would get working elsewhere but. The, the advantages are I'm waking up and I create what I want. <laughs> it's it's yeah, worth a yeah, thousand. Exactly. It, it's worth a hundred k more in salary <laughs> to me. Exactly, man. I hear you. I'm in a. I'm sort of feel in feel that I'm in a similar position yeah. too. And uh, yeah, it's a lovely place to be. And we we spoke before we started recording about the the merging of 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 hobbying and work life, and like they both just continue on like together, which is sort of a lovely yeah. thing to drive well, forward. Well, the thing is about that, like the only time that I make a difference on what is actually work is like tech support and reading emails and 
like setting up the website <laughs> or all the and each time there is actually research that's going on or recording or analyzing this piece of hardware then it's just fun and and that part of the product design for for me is like the driving force i can put up with with all the the naggings and the the bugs and the tech mm-hmm. support issues and the 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 yearly or monthly change everything aspect of the apple and 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 mac os platform that we have to endure and when you spend like six months and you're not bringing anything new for the customers really you're just helping apple make more money so that that that's funny that isn't it yeah, yeah. that pisses me I off mean, to no end and we have to put up with it developers yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it must form enough of a proportion of your customer base for it to be worth it. But I can see how that's frustrating. But I, I think, you know, like Apple have been rocking the boat a lot recently. And I, I guess that people don't love them through the rose tinted glasses like they did maybe 10 years ago when like, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I like Hackintoshes. I like the idea of Hackintosh. Yeah. To me, that's a cool thing. They still make pretty nice hardware. I like the aesthetics. It's just the business and politics and, and I think at this point, I'm tempted to say purposely deprecating all the the SDKs like routinely uh, year after year so that developers are stuck wasting time keeping up. I, I, I don't see otherwise. It must be, it, it must be written somewhere in, <laughs> in management like rules that they have to do for developers. And some developers are happy to just recode everything each month. And... Uh, since we started 20 years ago, there wasn't any juice platform. There wasn't uh, the only thing that was re- uh, remotely similar was the uh, VST SDK, uh, VST GUI mm-hmm. a platform. So what we're using now is some cr- weird Frankenstein mix of VST GUI with like 20 years of special code added to it. So it doesn't look like it. And so people say, oh, you could port your stuff easier to iOS if you had juice. Well, not invented here sorry <laughs> yeah we um it would be if you're st- if we started now we would take all these the nice uh toolkits that have been created but uh i'm old and i'm used to doing my stuff my way and we are i don't know if you're like this but i don't want to depend on anything that i can't i mean i want to be angry at my own code not against somebody else's code i want to be like that's my fault and you slap yourself you're not angry at somebody else or judging somebody else's design decision about like why this is impossible in this SDK just roll your sleeves and you code it yourself but the process is 10 times longer and we ship ship one product a year if we're lucky and well there's reasons that we're completely like obsessive about details but I think the stuff you make is great uh, as it is. Like you don't need to change. Um, oh, thank you. But yeah, I think we all here. Yeah, everyone. It's like you've you've not only got to learn a new language to make something in a different software. You've got to, you've got to learn how to learn that language as well. And you, there's like so much. Um, yeah, there's. It's like you 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 reach a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Like you'd maybe lose like a year and a half of development time to just making what you've got now in a different environment. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's inter- it would be interesting to know, like, how are you modeling? Like, when you've got, like, a Commodore 64 next to your software, how are you, or a Mega Drive, yeah. or a, a PSS 280, like, how are you <laughs> comparing those software oh, generations to the hardware? We need, like, five hours, but uh, one of the very... Uh, 
I wonder if you, your, your listeners or yourself have seen one of my latest uh, videos on my YouTube channel. This is one thing I do when, when, when a project is, is near complete, I spend a week or so like going through the technical details of how we did all of these things. And I just love doing that. It's so, <laughs> so fun. I mean, for some reason, people like it. It's incredibly nerd love nerdy. It, yeah. Uh, but explains like all the modifications we did to consoles and how we, we well, basically it's, and I'm going to do the same, by the way, for uh, our next product is a DX7. Why another DX7 plugin, you might ask? Uh, frankly, because we started 10 years ago and there wasn't any Dext. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't the Arturia one. Uh, so basically there was a few like really barely... Uh, emulations that weren't close enough to my my opinion and just the just fm8 isn't yeah, it yeah oh yeah fm yeah true fm8 was there but it never fm8 never said claimed that it was a dx7 emulator it was always it, yes we import dx7 sysx patches sysx um, but um yeah it's meant to do something else there's new waveforms there's a bigger like a modulation graph and operators that you can route around so the Yeah. It, it was on purpose that yeah it sounded like but don't don't stop there i mean we've done fm8 or fm7 to do something else uh the challenge of saying that uh a dx7 hasn't been to to my opinion never perfectly modeled before was was very enticing and it was just one of the many like all the, we basically took all the yamaha fm chips and one after the other uh, put them on the breadboard and protoboard and prodding it separately uh, basically you feed nice. yeah you look at what it's supposed to do and uh say uh, this address with this value should technically give you that output but we do it systematically like try all the combinations of stuff uh so we have digital sorry hit the mic there okay. we have uh some scripts and 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 code that actually uh talks to each of these chips and we have on the other end something digitally that captures the output so it's a, it's a feedback loop of in iterations where you you can like uh, what will you do if i send you that oh you do that okay so this means like, like you have theories and you kind of prove it so it's this it's like a constant circle of like trying new things and 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 asking the chips the chip uh, even like the, the the registers that weren't uh, technically documented by yamaha or by anyone Uh, what does that do? Does that influence the pitch? Is that a vibrato? Is that an LFO? Uh, if you do that and that in a certain order, does the LFO reset? I mean, I'm going to really, really technical details. Um, and no, I think you have to ask all of these. Yeah. yeah, like you say, you have to like ask questions of it. Yeah. Fire, and, fire. Um, and if go on. The, the way I think about it is that most emulations out there uh, really treats the whole system as a black box. In the, in, the, in the case of the DX7, they send SysX to it, modify it in a, I don't know, MIDI quest or something, all the parameters. They look at what the output is doing and it's guessing at a very high level what it must be doing underneath. Whereas we open the DX7, there's two main chips that produce sound differently. There is a CPU, there's a DAC, And there's a sub CPU, and we analyze each and every one of them separately. Uh, like, tell me exactly what you need to do, and then after, when we have exact module uh, emulations of each of these separate things, you can make the big picture. And then you don't have the weird uh, case where you change one thing, it fixes one preset, and it breaks two others. You don't see that right, yeah. because you it's always a compromise. Yeah, that's it. So that that's the sort of stuff 
that you gain by 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 doing it the hard way and the low this the it's not commercially viable because it's so so long and tedious that nobody in their right mind would do that but we do it for fun <laughs> so that's our advantage we don't look at the hours we don't really uh <laughs> so yeah that, that's how we can manage to do things accurately it's just we don't look at the hours it, it's just a challenge mm -hmm. that we need to go and we're not satisfied until we we hear or see a difference in a spectrograph. We're at the point where it might sound like I'm bragging, but it's not only I, can, I stop when I don't hear a difference with my ears, it's when I don't make differences with my tools. <laughs> uh, right, spectrum yeah. analyzer or phase inversion, mixing of digital signals, it needs to be a flat silence, you know? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay, this test is passed, let's go into the next one. Well, I think that level of that amazing level of detail that you go into, um, yeah, you you have to you have a YouTube video of going your test rigs for the Mega Drive, the and um, for the Super Nintendo. My last two videos are yeah, yeah. I can't wait to try that one, man. Yeah, the yeah. So and people do love the detail of of that, and I think that's where your your plugins stand out above the competitors. Is you have like. Um, like uh, what's it? Newgrounds are doing a competition, aren't they? You yeah. Um, with your synth, the the yeah. uh, the, the new Snes uh, chip synth SFC, and you've got Grant uh, Kirkhope. Yeah, it was amazing judging it, and David Wise. So you've got these like oh. seminal gaming uh, yeah. composers who are like judging your you know the the production of people using your yeah. software. Man. Yeah, like it, I mean that's a great. Um, and it's it, a credit to the to the software yeah. you've made. And in Japan, uh, Yuzo Koshiro uh, started to be interested in our FM stuff, and I was really, I mean, David Wise, Kirk Hope, and, and all, the, and 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 Koshiro was really, wow, that that's, <laughs> we didn't expect that. Like they're listening to it and they say, wow, it sounds as bad as I remember it sounded, or <laughs> that, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they are incredible. Like I, I'm someone who grew up in. It, with a Mega Drive as my first console, yeah. and I've still got it here now, and I've got you know I've still got all the carts and the games and stuff, and um, yeah, seeing your you know your I, you know I've got loads of Porter sounds too, you know the I've got a few which ones a couple of <laughs> I'll tell you I've which got, chip is inside. <laughs> I've got the two eighty. Oh, sorry, just let me put the light on. I, well, it's got two five seventies that are boxed, but in some countries they're called the four eighty. Yeah, that, that, I think that's an OPL2, if I'm not mistaken, inside. I love that one. It's got like a modulation, digital yeah, modulation Yeah, I, I think that's the so-called Sound Blaster keyboard from the 8-bit guy. It is. That's the one. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. I, there's, and there's, yeah, so there's a, yeah, there's a PSS280 there. But I think I have the 580, the one that you, the one that Porter Sound looks like. Yeah. Is it the 580? Um, but hey, man! I just put that on a use. I have a huge Excel sheet of a cheat sheet of all the Yamaha synths and which sound chips they're inside. Because even though I, I drink and I I, I dream about them, at a certain point they're numbers and. <laughs> I'm, yeah, exactly. That's so cool that you're doing it at DX at DX seven thing, man. Is that because on your website there's a couple of things that says future? Yeah, we do, we don't even FC. list it. We don't even list it. <laughs> yeah, because it's not. Yeah, because you have an FC and a sixty four, which are both future products. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm get I, I'm guessing where the sixty four. I'm guessing the sixty four is not the Nintendo sixty four. No, but I, 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 we we need to change it because I never thought people would get confused by it. But I mean, millennials and people uh, younger than me are interpreting that as we're making a Nintendo sixty four plugin, which is really not the case. So I'm amateur re- hour. I, I'm I'm changing its name to C sixty four because C sixty four is not trademarked. So that's kind of cool. Isn't it? No. Wow. If you if you trademark C sixty four, it's actually uh, sort of metal. <laughs> like the trademark C sixty four is owned by a, a metal alloy company. It's kind of fun. Amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah, the the stuff you model's been incredible, and I think the yeah you you also add elements to them to to enhance enhance the playability, don't you? Yes. Uh, typically, we try to do it in a way that it doesn't. Uh, what 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 scares me a lot is is making like these these extensions, if you will, of of the original limitations. Because if you send at one point, if you send uh, your beta to a sound designer. And all the presets that come out don't sound don't don't recall you of like what it's supposed to to, to sound like, and you failed. I mean, you've you've exposed too many, too many new stuff that that, I mean, it needs to still feel like like uh, like the limitations of what you would do normally. Uh, typically, the only thing that we had is uh, pitch resolution is in in, in enhance uh, with an opt-in sort of stuff, or the polyphony is improved, so you can play full yeah. six chords. So t- typically, what we do is like, for instance, the the the, the Genesis or Mega Drive one, uh, one voice is in one entire Genesis or Mega Drive. So you can stack like the six FM voices plus the the three pulses and the noise, and and or one sample inside one voice. Nobody would do that, but. <laughs> That's cool, man. Yeah. And, and also, I guess also the things you didn't have with these keyboards was like the MIDI control. So that's oh, yeah. also like something that you've never heard is like a really on on beat riff from a from an old PSS keyboard. Yeah. Um. The, yeah. You, there is also an arpeggiator, uh, arpeggiator, I think, on yeah. the Porter FM, and a really nice reverb as well. That reverb. We we've incredible. used that same reverb for a decade. I mean, it, it's. <laughs> It, it it served us so well. <laughs> yeah. What is it? Where it's did that it, come from? It's it's ambience. It was a smart smart electronics uh, ambience reverb that was. I uh, remember it. Yeah. It's early white early. And blue. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. And basically, we licensed it and used it for like <laughs> for. We need a reverb. Like, why don't we? Uh, we're we're a different kind of. We're not. Uh, the DSP interest that we have as a company is really in how to assemble things on the digital side, but we're not the best people like crafting re- reverbs or filters to a certain extent. I mean, we could, but it's not the stuff that, that drives us in the morning for us. Uh, we, we're not really interested in making bread and butter effects at all. Mm. Uh, Especially so, when they've been done to a really Yeah, and by people like they, they could eat me for breakfast and... <laughs> Yeah, that guy that made ambience, he's called, I think he was called Marcus Mag- something. Magnus. Magnus. He had a really good, I remember years ago going to his webpage and getting loads of free plugins. Ambience was just like one of like six or seven. Um, but you know what? It's really uh, reassuring to hear that you've used that in Portisound because <laughs> I know I didn't know that. And I used to use that plugin like yeah. years ago and think, and like I loved it then. Um, yeah, man. 
So you've done just just to point out uh, something that's really cool about the chip synth MD. You can load uh, VGM files. Oh yeah. So yeah. this this is an incredible feature. That, for that, me. that is one of the things that like people around me and the team or friends or testers said it shouldn't be on the VST plugins. It makes no sense. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah. Like not only not only it allows me to listen to stuff and to see if my code is right, which is one of the reasons <laughs> it's there in the first place. But I mean, just to, to be inspired by like years and so many great artists and soundtracks that gives you shivers and to listen to uh, through uh, them on uh, your DAW with your ASIO drivers and your proper outputs. And that was the reason you can slow it down and see how it was made and study it. Uh, for me, that's, that's the most important part of what we do. I mean, it, you need to be able to, it's, it's, it's not just this, you don't just sample like, a few uh, few waveforms of FM and ship a product. You need to feel <laughs> and twist it and study and learn it and see how it's made. Like share the, the joy that I had making this and understanding the software so you can like, I don't know, uh, circuit bend it to a certain way yourself mm. and see, see how it works and mute yeah. this and pan this and... I yeah, I think that that is the amazing thing um, from my point of view, and you're sure from lots of people in your audience's point of view, is that there was so many iconic computer game like songs and sounds, and when you load them, when you load the VGM file into Chips, uh, Chips Synth MD, um, you can you can like mute and solo the those tracks, and you can hear like just the bass line from Sonic. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever <laughs> what's, the, what's the what's the oh fuck I've forgotten the level the level the Sonic 2 level uh is it called Marble it's not called Marble Mystic Cave you know okay. the bass line in Mystic Cave like that was just like we used to love that bass line it was just so amazing yeah. and you can now load it up and solo it and just listen to that and then not only that I mean I get excited just doing that but then having it mapped across my MIDI keyboard and being able to play like you know multiple notes it's like it's just an amazing feeling man and i'm sure for people who don't have the nostalgia it's also still an amazing thing because like yeah. it sounds are great yeah and there's some some people say is that legal or is that not legal the the way i that, that's i could spend an hour on, on uh, because it was really something that that i thought about and for me it's a way to it's an it's an homage to to to, to what these these early composers did and and all the, the limitations that they have to go through and the the fact that they made all these fantastic pieces of music with all these limitations and many people can learn from that like listen to that it only has six voices and that was lucky <laughs> and i mean just strip out the layers and, and go to the essentials and, and just talking of bare like copyright of ripping patches and sounds uh, I thought the composers didn't want that, but I mean, some of the, the, the pro composers in the day said, no, we love this. I mean, I can rip my own stuff and I want people to study them. Oh, so you're not pissed off about it. No, absolutely not. So some, yeah. some, some vintage video game composers were like actually thrilled about this, this option to just rip sounds and to study. Definitely. No, there's definitely that element to it. And it's really nice to, to, uh, to hear you say that they're sort of endorsing it because you can understand why they're not getting 
those those uh, SNES games and the and the Mega Drive games, they're not they're not selling as new products. So I guess they're not like losing out on anything. Well, um, the company. Well, if they're completely pirated, yes, uh, you see how Nintendo does takedowns of all the emulation site because those IPs are still worth a lot, especially to Nintendo because they keep rehashing the. The Zeldas and the Marios and the and the whatever is over and over. Yeah, but not the F Zero. So I don't know not- why they don't do F Zero. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our favorites. F Zero is cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they are notorious, aren't they, Nintendo, for yeah. like taking things down. Um, yeah, but yeah. we don't we don't bundle with them or anything. It's it, it's up to the user to decide what they do with it. I mean, we can't stop them from ripping them and making remixes. And don't blame us. I mean, we're giving the tools and. Yeah, for us, no, it's, it's, it's to study the tracks, do whatever you want with it. Definitely, and you're right about the limitations, you know, the limitations that those composers had. They were limited to, like, three channels of, of, of sound and one track, one channel of noise, and that's it for the, whole, for the whole thing. So they had to use inventive ways to make a delay, things sound like oh, a yeah. delay, you know, just lowering the volume of the notes like it's being yeah. echoed or... Um, yeah. Nowhere yeah, as like, crazy as in the Commodore 64, though, because <laughs> the recycling of the voices, either the best composers, you really feel like you're hearing like six or seven parts and it's only three channels with recycling and exactly. like putting a bass drum and a bass note <laughs> separately on different beats. And oh, it's just amazing. Definitely, I think the limitations across the board with a, 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 a system like that, not the sound, the graphics as well, because you were limited within a, a square to yeah. what colours could be displayed. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, have you seen the new Dizzy game? Do you remember Dizzy? Yeah, yeah. I rem- well, it was more of the UK thing, if I recall, but I did see it, yeah. Uh, I think it's a Spectrum. Maybe it's a Spectrum uh, incarnation, not a Commodore 64, but there's a, basically a new game. Uh, of Dizzy that you can play online and it takes advantage of this the the graphical limitations and it it, it like it makes it, it makes the graphics super colorful um but without destroying any sort of clarity like it really yeah. looks visually beautiful and they're using the graphics in a way that in like no one ever thought about using it like that in the past because you wanted the the main character to be blue and the background to be red, so you wouldn't ever let those two merge. But in mm. yeah, in this latest Dizzy game, they've got an amazing, amazing sort of visual um, visual theme to it that just looks fantastic. Hmm. Am I right in thinking there was recently like a leak or or someone found an old yeah, um, uh, yeah like they're... a manual for one of the old FM synths. Yeah, there's uh, someone. Well, I thought you meant the the recent Nintendo. Leaks, oh no, the Giga Leak that was amazing yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> but no, there's a, and there's we we didn't look at it. If you look at all the serious emulation circles, we 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 do our best not to read it because that would put uh, especially uh, project products like Mame, uh, projects like Mame, which I contribute to part time. Uh, would if if it was known that some of their reverse engineering was 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 made using property stolen material, it would jeopardize the whole thing. So nobody in the team has the right to look at it, and they don't want to. And they, and if somebody mentions something uh, that's potentially uh, dirty in a way, uh, I mean we're all angry. We don't want to. And personally, I understand that. And whatever I see, if, if I see something written online about this particular sound chip or somebody says that this does this that way, I say, okay, maybe, let's verify. <laughs> <laughs> I never, 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 never take anything for granted. And I, I, I'm fascinated by other people's research. 
but I never just say, okay, that's the way it works and I implement it in C++ and I sell it. No, I need to verify always. But your question was, what, what again? Um, uh, the leak, oh, the uh, FM. Yeah, there was like an FM, there was like a, a Japanese manual that got leaked yeah, for uh, one of the big... It's not really a leak more than uh, the, the sort well, of manual. That, sorry, yeah, it yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's basically Yamaha. I'm fascinated by, by all the, the chips Yamaha made and they made so many. And they, they well, they, they make manuals like yearly or something like that with all data sheets for all the current products. Oftentimes, if, if they, they have, the, there are some chips that Yamaha make that's just for internal purposes. Like you don't have data sheets of the, the FM chips and the DX7. It doesn't exist. You can't find it. If it's a Sound Blaster chip, then yes, there's manuals that you can order and you, you sign an NDA with them. They give you an application manual that tells you a bit more about the inner workings of this particular chip. Though for emulation perspective, it's still too high level to get like all the gritty details. It still get, get, it gets you a long way. And otherwise, you only find like data sheets, which is basically just electrically, how do you wire this thing in a, in a system? Or if you need to repair it, like troubleshoot, like what's, what's a plus five, what's ground, what's, what's digital outputs, digital out, uh, input, so you can figure out if a chip is working on, or not. But if you want to get deeper and implement, uh, create a design with specific Yamaha chips, you need to have the application manuals. And this is not what's been leaked. What's been leaked is, and it's not even a leak, it's just really a binder that's been scanned of all the data sheets of lots of Yamaha chips of like mid-90s or 96 or something like that. I, there, there weren't things I didn't have, maybe one or two things that I didn't gather like from scourging the internet and doing re searches in Japanese only and, <laughs> and tricking the, the Yamaha website into trying all the, because the, the Yamaha website did list some of those at one point and you, you could type a random number and find some new data sheets you never knew existed in their search engine. So I did that for a while. That was fascinating. That's cool, <laughs> <laughs> and um just going so talking about like your your latest thing that is released the 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 snares yeah. the sfc the chipset sfc it's got a cool feature where uh you can have you can load samples into it is that right yeah. i haven't like well yeah that basically if you if you if you uh i don't know how how much you know about that but the, the super nintendo was essentially uh eight voice wavetable system where you can have uh, ADPCM, some some format of ADPCM called bit rate reduction or BRR, which uh, you could cram. Maybe a game would have I don't know anything from uh, four kilobytes to like sixteen kilobytes of compressed uh, wave waveforms with loop points with like lots of limitations in terms of loop point sizes needed to be a certain length. So it was kind of very very limited, but it, it allowed us to have strings and pianos and you know real sample so you'd see you'd mm. see uh, closer to the amiga Th think of an, an amiga with eight voices and better interpolation that would be the snes with with an echo cool. ba baked in so uh, typically what you do is you import your own samples but if we allowed importing like 44 16 like like three second samples it wouldn't fit it so basically we have a gauge online where if you drop too many samples you know how far you are from a like the reality of what was possible at the time. So you could try to fit, uh, insert a bunch of like modern samples and you can downsample them 
all non-destructively in the application and you watch your gauge and if in your gauge say okay you're reaching the 100 percent of sample capacity you stop there and say mm -hmm. let's make a song like it's 1991 <laughs> right so that that's the thing so you can either that's just cool. with md you can listen to like all the classics the final fantasy chrono trigger zelda metroid and uh, the donkey kong country uh, of course uh, series <laughs> and rip samples and analyze them the same way in MD, but with full samples. But now the copyright part gets a bit more tricky, but people like David Wise were quite, I did, weren't stressed about this. Yeah, so you can import your own samples or rip them, but again, if you don't own the copyrights, and that's the other interesting thing, talking with the, with the old engineers, <laughs> they all said, we just ripped the Korgs and the, the Yamaha Rumplers, like just, we didn't have even the right to do it in the first place, so just rip them. We don't care. <laughs> like very few, the just Wild like West days. Ju yeah, just like computing. with the Amiga, like the amount of people that actually sampled their own drum machines and like people were ripping each other all the time. Like you hear the same samples and strings and flutes all over. <laughs> Cool, man. That's amazing. I wonder if you could make your first ever Steinway piano in the, <laughs> the snares. Yeah, it sounds like, like it does when you take one sample of piano and stretch it the entire eight octaves. Unless mm. you, you make like three sections. But you could, you could make uh, eight different sections, uh, eight different samples of piano, but you never hear a multi-sampled piano in the SNES, ever. I mean, the one piano note or the one string sound that comes out, oh, this, this string sound is when you boot up uh, uh, Chipsynth uh, SFC, you're presented with the Emu Marketo uh, string that was used in uh, Pet Shop Boys and, I don't know, uh, Kate Bush and all millions of soundtracks. And to me, that, that's, that's the Zelda string sound. <laughs> it's uh, nice. And it, I, it was using the curse vial and the emu, and you don't even know in the professional uh, rumpler market, like who who owns the original rights to it. It's not even clear. <laughs> like was it emu that came it came to emu emacs or curse vial or Roland? Like you find the same samples everywhere, even in official banks like this. So uh, th there's a whole scene on Discord that that is fascinated by uh, figuring out. Like each sample of each video game of like especially the Nintendo stuff and the PlayStation, like where which sample library it comes from and which old rumpler it comes from, how it's been resampled, who recycled the sample of someone else. And they make lists and lists and Excel sheets of guesswork, but sometimes with frequency analyzer and spectrum analyzer. <laughs> yeah, wow. no doubt it's Roland expansion, this and that for that particular rumpler. <laughs> Amazing! What an incredible like dedication to. It's a rabbit hole, and I don't get into that because I go crazy. But it's uh, people are people are very very enthusiastic about that. Yeah, I do love. I've got to say, I do love like the emu sound. Like the oh yeah, you, you did mention early on, like the nineties was an amazing time for gear and uh, for music equipment. Yeah, the emu. A lot of the emu stuff. I love all those little romplers. You know, all of the the rack mounted. The Proteus 2000. And they all have their ar artifacts and, and filters and grain and limitations. That's why all our emulations are, we kind of put the threshold on the mid 90s where we lose interest. But Because if it sounds like general MIDI or 
are too high quality is just very boring. It has no no charm. It it needs more grit. It needs more distortion. It needs it needs limitations. It needs frequency and like envelope resolutions. That exactly. that's where yeah for for me that that's the interesting part. Like what do you do? And especially, what do you do? Like, how do you design a synthesizer? How do you design a console? How do you design a video game or a soundtrack with these limitations that are unique to each platform? Or as an engineer, I, the first sound chips were amazing, where most of the original sound chips were designed by non-musicians. So, especially the Atari stuff, you can't tune. You can't tune the thing. It's not. It's not made on any scale. It, it doesn't have the pitch resolution. Uh, that that's required to do a simple like C scale, C major scale, or let alone pentatonic. You know, really, the, is that the ST? No, no, the ST is able to do. I'm talking the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, the Tia chip, and the Pokey chip. Pokey chip is a bit better, but there's a whole line of story about <clears throat> by a a scholar car called uh, Karen Collins here in Canada made like the scores of this particular Atari 2600 game and the choices of notes and pitch were directly related to the limitations of what were achievable. Right, wow. So you see all this B here is like 20 cents flat down and was still used because, you know, so it was microtonal before it was like <laughs> all the rage. Cool, yeah. I do love that. And I, I, I think there's a lot in the limitations that the early like composers and video game programmers had um and also people making music in the early days electronic music you know having to use like din sync with you know like all these all these yeah just try and get things to work with limitations oh, yeah. it made oh, yeah, you it made you really inventive you know um and you, you, you and you quite hear the, the the kind of errors that the early '80s bands had, like the s weird splices and <laughs> yeah, when things don't loop properly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, there's hip hop tracks where they're playing the loop yeah. and it's like it doesn't hit loop properly, but like that's sort of the charm. I think yeah, yeah there there is a few and we didn't we didn't care where. back then, but now we have we've 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 like we're completely spoiled with perfect looping of everything, and you listen back to that and you spot all these errors which. In top 10, you'd never hear and never care about. Our, our ears, our minds are trained to perfectly accurate clock of everything because of DAWs, DAWs. But I, when I started, like, you'd get sync errors. I, I was running Cakewalk Pro, Cakewalk 3.0 and something called, I don't recall, some crappy app where you had to stop every one minute and, and just to resync audio and media because they'd go out of sync. It was infuriating. Yeah, right. And just to have like a four minute track dumped to tape, like real like a compact cassette that we did in the days, we couldn't do that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's a lot easier now. I, I, I do like though, you know, I like the hearing loops that are, are like mistimed and um, yeah, like it's sort of nice. It's like when DJ sets now aren't quite the same with people mixing on um, like software that it all tracks together because I like the phase of the kick drum, yeah. you know, and the phase didn't quite work and, and it like sometimes the, the kick drum just disappeared for a minute when people yeah. were mixing. Like, I love that. I think that there's, there's something that happens in, in DJing. Yeah, the, the risk that you get DJing, like, like seguing from one beat to the other. Mm -hmm. And I didn't practice that enough, but there were some times when I got it perfectly and the f warm feeling of beat, mat beat matching two different records and were in tune. Or, I mean, it was a lot of practice. 
I don't want to sound like an old guy, but I wouldn't have enough as much fun apart from knowing which track goes well with the other and knowing the mood of the crowd. But to really making one beat kick into the other and and changing one song to the other, finding what works was it got your heart pumping because you could screw up. Did, you could yeah. screw up and the whole yeah. crowd could go, what a crappy DJ that is. <laughs> and so it was really exciting the challenge of will I make it will do I have enough time to to see you it and rewind it and before it people like stop dancing go and do somewhere else or go to the toilet or whatever <laughs> yeah exactly yeah I think um that's cool man just quickly what do you do with MAME you mentioned MAME there what what <clears throat> sort of stuff do you do I Mame? do uh some casual uh I love I mean, it's kind of weird because so much, I mean, so much work has already been done. But if you look hard enough in a console video game history, you'll find some things that were sold for a few months and got completely uh, like discontinued or, or completely uh, overshadowed by the Nintendos or stuff like that, especially in Japan. Uh, lots of small mm -hmm. consoles were released. And even here... Uh, I mean, I'm talking consoles that had maybe a thousand units produced and like five games or stuff like that. This is the thing that really drives me. And uh, I have eBay watch list of really, really obscure consoles. And sometimes I'm the first one to get it that has remotely like uh, technical knowledge of electronics. So uh, and those are really moments of bliss where I can say I've, I've contributed a whole driver to MAME. Like this complete system was forgotten. It was all listed like photographs of screens. And I know some guy who might have a cassette or, or a game that works with it. And to make it available for that everyone can play it. I've made the full driver for the Unisonic Champion, which nobody has heard of. I've partly Amazing. contributed to the Casio PV1000, PV PV2000, and the Epoch Super Cassette Vision, which are three consoles from Japan that were completely overshadowed by the Famicom. And they all have their quirks. They're not that interesting, but I feel in 100 years from now, if I didn't make it, then it would probably be lost. And uh yeah that's brilliant man that's amazing i mean that is i think people are realizing now like that the the video games are a huge part of our life and, and that the backing up that history of the things that have gone by is really important especially because um, if you know right now like i mean I, i don't know if you still game but and it's not really true and i i'm not a video modern video game specialist but you see all the big productions the, the triple a's <laughs> like they go with Uh, there's a lot much parallels to be done with with the movie industry where well, blockbuster first and all the money goes into that there's there's much less uh things that surprise you in gameplay and gameplay ideas although it's not true because of the uh the homebrew community and the indie uh video game developers are creating some amazing new things with new ideas but in the time in the early 80s Nobody wrote a book on how to make a video game. Like all these different attempts by different companies or how do we display video and how do we play sound that makes it exciting. And I'm just, not just talking like video games, but arcades as well. Like all these hmm. different arcade machines that have different sound and videos and different uh, things that we're trying and sometimes are unique and forgotten. This is fascinating because nobody knew what worked really. They were trying things. This is what makes the golden age of video games and arcades very exciting to me. Excellent, man. Excellent. Yeah, well, that that is tremendous that you're like that you're you're 
getting these consoles and submitting drivers for them and keeping that history going. I'm a big fan of a, a podcast called um, The Retro Hour. Yeah, yeah. And, um, mm. yeah, I love that stuff. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't really play any modern video games. Uh, my interest is solely in... 20 what was happening 20 years yeah, ago 30, and yeah I make really it 30 40 now <laughs> <laughs> yeah great man well um just a couple more questions just sure, just a couple sure. of short bits um just is there like what what else do you like to do aside from sort of making program um you know programming leading um vst plugins and stuff what other what other things do you like to do um in in your life oh when you're not doing that yeah well it's kind of related but i started uh started i mean i've been programming for 20 years so the next challenge was always like hardware i know how to understand hardware but right now i'm the point where i i've dabbled i've been dabbling for four four or five years on creating my own hardware so that's uh, wow, incredibly nice. rewarding and the learning experience of that is is amazing so th- you get this the same the, the the tricks that I've learned to troubleshoot what's wrong applied to real physical things instead of code. It's satisfying and frustrating in different ways. Uh, <laughs> so right now I'm, I'm creating a part-time some kind of weird uh, modifications. I, I like modifying old consoles, so I'm putting this uh, further where I'm, I've created, uh, it's on my YouTube channel, where I make these little boards that replace the CPU of old console so i made a board that replaces a a z80 um wow i made one that replaces a 6809 and i made one that replaces the cpu of a nintendo or famicom and so you just lift the cpu you put my board inside and it has an arm chip uh, powerful enough like 200 megahertz so i can code in c plus plus and drive old consoles with modern code. And I don't have to code in 6502 assembler or stuff like that. So I can do, uh, there's MIDI inputs and SD cards so I can load ROMs and VJ and DJ and, and, and do demos or trackers or just full MIDI synthesizers out of that platform. So all my evenings, if I'm not doing uh, VST work, I'm doing uh, hardware synthesizer. So that's really, and sadly, while I have lots of music gear and, and guitars and I don't do as much music as I can and I did I have some tracks I do collabs with 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 a good friend of mine and I have stuff that played on radio local radio here mind you and that got some some a little bit of airplay but I don't have I don't pretend like I'm a very good songwriter I do love that but the amount of frustration in music making and the fact that I mean I know what my I think I'm I'm good at it to a certain extent, but I don't think I can provide the world with an, with as much. Uh, how can I say that? My contribution, my creative contribution, is better served with with code and electronics than with music because I think I'm my knowledge and interests are. I know at a certain level, I don't say I'm the best at what I do, but I think I can provide good stuff that not everyone else could do. Whereas if I make music, I'd probably drown in a million, a sea of million of similar sounding acts. Or I don't think I can provide something new right now. Maybe at one point I'll release something, but my the, yeah, the bar on my own music creation is so high that I can't even listen to the stuff I do more than 15 minutes. <laughs> 
<laughs> that really resonates. Sorry. That really resonates <laughs> with me too, man. No, it really resonates with me. Um, yeah, and I think you are tremendous. You're tremendous at that programming stuff. Certainly, yeah, like one of the best in the world at creating creating what you create. Um, and you, you know, you seem to be really driven by that stuff, which is massively important. Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's becoming more of a comfort zone. So like a, an, an artist like Bowie would con- constantly change, challenge himself or change or change cities just to become uncomfortable and be able to create again. Or you take a guitar and you tune it differently to be impressed and surprised by it again. That's why I'm going to electronics because I've been doing that for so long. So thank you. But I, I still feel like I've... Uh, like the imposter syndrome is, is like plastered on my forehead a lot. Uh, most days, <laughs> I get some days where I'm proud of myself, but the rest of the time, mm. I, I I have so much to learn still. Yeah, I I think that's a really that can you can use that those thoughts and feelings to drive you forward as well. You know to. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I've certainly suffered from imposter syndrome a lot. You know, I, I call myself mid-era for a reason, you know. So, yeah, I think, um, but those things drive you forward to keep creating, don't they? And to keep it learning is. and to keep getting better and to keep doing, um, just not being, re- don't, don't, not resting on your laurels. Oh, that would be, the, uh, resting on my laurels or going to code for banking systems would be the same thing. <laughs> Amazing. And just finally, do you have any uh, like uh, philosophy for life or any mantra that you particularly go by? I think I think we briefly discussed about it is is if you're not happy, think of what can make you happy and do it. It's just as simple as that. But people don't get the, the they should get a kick on the back just to do it. Who cares if you're poor for a while? Who cares if you have trouble struggling? If you, you your perseverance, perseverance is i mean just do it <laughs> i don't know um yeah just go uh, do, absolutely do what you want to do even if it's hard uh wake up in the morning and try to try to find i mean i guess i'm lucky it's, it's not everyone who can i don't know, get get lucky enough to, to 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 get money to do exactly what they want to do in life i'm extremely fortunate and i know that but i think there's many people that could achieve this state and don't do it for some reason that's entirely theirs so work on that that would be my uh my very good yeah yeah totally totally agree um yeah i think it wouldn't it doesn't happen overnight you know it's not something that you could expect happen overnight but yeah i think if you do go on the path that you that you want to go on you want to carve a new path um yeah it's a great it's a great philosophy man yeah life is too short to be miserable it is. It is. We're not here for very long, are we? <laughs> no. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I really, really look forward to your the future of what you're making. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people do. Uh, yeah, huge artists, composers from back in the day. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing more from you very soon. Thank you. You will. We'll keep churning it up. Well, our top guy, David, is uh, really, really amazing uh, insight into his career trajectory. Um, I really, really admire that he doesn't stay in the job. Uh, like he, has to, he has to give his actual heart and soul to something, which I just think is an amazing philosophy. What a cool guy. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed that one. I'm a big Chip Tune fan, I'm a big video game fan, so that really, really uh, floats my boat. 
as will the next episode, uh, which is with an absolutely iconic chip tune artist. Uh, it wasn't done on purpose, these two are just next to each other. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's going to be really, really, really incredible. Um, yeah, please donate to the podcast if you can. It'd be very, very much appreciated. I do all this by myself and uh, I do love doing it, but it would be great to get some support back from you all. Excellent. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Madeira and I'll see you again soon.